I'll send you the full file if you want it afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. cool. Just store it away on my computer. Yeah, that'll do. Yeah, yeah, I can send you that. For my grandchildren, when they have their epic epic viewing session in 50 years from now. Yeah, I wonder, (laughs) because would you be curious to see like what your grandparents had had been like talking about? Would you be be interested to see what their hot takes were on the issues of the day? (laughs) To be fair, I think as we move forward, like there's so much content, so much saturation that it will seem less special. It will be less sentimental to have video memories of people because now it's re- it seems really sentimental if we have like a few little diaries and a few postcards it's all we have to remember them by but the the historians or the relatives of the future will just have such an oversaturation of potential content i think that it might be lost in terms of sentimental value maybe yeah it could be <laughs> I don't know. I guess we'll find out <laughs> if people are going back and watching like like TikToks in the same way yeah, we yeah, would yeah, like yeah. uncover like ancient like soundless black and white recordings. Yeah, yeah. Well, just think the job that historians of the future will have on their hands, right? Because you know, even for something like you know, let's start, let's start because I'm yeah. gonna go on a tangent. Anyway, That's fine, right? Well, everybody, like I started recording a minute ago, so everyone, this oh, is. Oh, did you? Okay, this great. Is, <laughs> this is Seb Whitehouse. Um, yeah, welcome to welcome to yeah another episode of Chatter, man. Uh, great to have you here. Yeah, thanks very much for inviting me on, mate. It's a uh, yeah, I'm glad we got round to it. We've been meaning to talk for a little while, and I'm uh, looking forward to having a conversation with you. Yeah, man. So yeah. Go back to your tangent. That was really Yeah, okay, cool. So if you think about it, like the the amount of um, historical records and documentation we have for different events throughout history, obviously the the amount of information we have available to us obviously increases through time. So even with with a topic like World War II, for example, we've just got so much, so much information on it, personal accounts of people writing in diaries and newspapers from all over the world and books, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we have far more information on World War II than we may have had of historical events that were even like 100 years earlier than that. And um, so you think historians of the future, if they were going to look back and analyse the sort of um, the presidency of Donald Trump, for example, and the amount of the amount of content and perspective <laughs> that they will have to sift through the the ability to form a coherent narrative it almost seems like it's going to get more difficult the more information we have available to us because it's much easier to form a simplistic narrative when you only have limited information whereas the more information we have available to us you think it's counterintuitive to an extent you think it would be easier to get to the truth of an issue but really you have the different perspectives and hot takes of millions of people which make it even harder to potentially reach a conclusion in some respects anywhere yeah i wonder if I wonder if historians will like go back and and go through say the news articles about certain issues or whether they will go like straight to the sources and because because the sources are so abundant there right. I, I I'd be curious especially just from like a historical perspective because like mm. we when I I remember my my history lessons in school in like what would have been like year seven year eight English school yeah English school types or uh, class Hmm. names Um, but they like I remember we got taught about sources and these are like the lessons that literally I still remember to this day as we were talked about like how do you identify primary sources like what sources have weaknesses what's like always the the good and bad parts of different types of media be that a photo a film like a written account something like that and we were generally we would like accept that newspapers were one of the better primary sources but now 
Like I was commenting this to my friend the other day. You see when you see an article, and I see this day in, day out, where the article will be quoting something that someone said or a video that ha- like, uh, that's been doing the rounds or, or anything. But they won't act. They will be like, oh, X person is in trouble for this comment or, or you know, someone said something controversial and blah, blah, blah. But they won't show the actual source of, of the thing. They don't, they don't tell you like what the controversial tweet was. They don't tell you what the stupid comment was. They don't show you the video. They just talk about it. And I was like... I was, I'm baffled as to like how we consider it journalism to just be like saying the thing, even though we can literally like link the exact piece of information we're talking about and we choose not to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that I find that extremely frustrating, especially in the current climate with um, like, yeah, gender, um, gender, race, um, sexuality based grievances. Um, the, the the fact that we're to read an article and it says um, it says racist abuse, but they won't kind of clarify always what that is, for example. And I find that very frustrating because increasingly, because it really actually gives journalists free reign to dress anything up however they want it to make to make it sound more newsworthy. Um, and it's yeah, it's very it's very frustrating. And I think it's very interesting what you said about now the primary, uh, I suppose newspapers are a secondary source, and now much less reliable sources of information for that reason. And it's also a kind of damning indictment on the kind of death spiral that journalism has been on over the last. I don't know. I suppose it kind of gets it gets worse each year. I couldn't really put a time on it, but yeah, certainly the last five years, I would say, uh, if not since maybe the the kind of um, rise of social media and the internet in general anyway. Yeah, but I mean, honestly, I feel we're in a I feel we're in a stronger position now with journalism than we were, say, a couple of years ago, Mm. because there are like shoots of alternative like not even alternative media sites because they've always been around, but like alternative places where like good journalists can make a career and do well and produce good work in like places like Substack, we've seen, um, yeah, things like that just starting to pop up. And also like a lot of the sort of more like laid bare censorship, even like people like DuckDuckGo deciding it's like, oh, we're going to go for mainstream sources. It's almost like everything's more out in the open now, the, the, the censorship, like the agenda, like ideologically, at least from from like the system in an attempt to maintain the status quo, like as, as such, it's like all very out in the open. And there seems to be like pockets of resistance. It, it, whereas if you went back a few years, uh, like consider where we were, like say in the middle of like Trump being, being president, right? No Republican ever, ever will admit that he failed them, right? He, they, they, they wouldn't even like, if you see, if you said, Hey, you know, Trump needs to seriously do something important, something about like section 230, or, um, he needs to do something about like actually something about China and the, the genocide, or there's, there's so many issues that like he claimed he was going to do something and he didn't. And if you tried to tell Republicans in the middle of that, hey, right, come on, guys, like, he's not perfect. He's not the greatest, you know, he's not the savior of the world. <laughs> Most of them would have been like, you know, well, what do you want, the, the, the Democrats? And then they were like so in it. And the Democrats and the, the Republicans, I think, over the last year or two, have become like the the republicans have gone yeah okay well you know trump wasn't perfect they're finally able to admit it now that he's gone and the democrats are like seeing the results of like their own stupidity with joe biden and it's like absolutely continuing to tank like 
appalling. It's, 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 do you not think, well, do you think that I'm being naive to think we're in a better position now than we were? Um, I, no, I, no, I wouldn't say naive um, at all. Um, I think that things are changing so fast at the moment that sometimes it's hard to keep track of where we're at. Um, there's certainly periods of time that I feel more hopeful and then I, but then I also question whether or not it's because I surround myself with whether it be certain publications or certain commentators that I find to be reliable. And then also in my personal life, I have relationships with friends and family who I can have reasonably, um, reasonably sane and productive conversations with. So I do sometimes go through periods of time of thinking that we're past the worst of it, but then that might just be a result of the, <clears throat> the type of content I view and the type of people that I cultivate around me in my life. So sometimes it can be really hard to get a, a broad scale view of, of precisely, of precisely what's going on. I would say that you would hope that journalism, the integrity of it, and the clickbaity kind of divisive nature of it, the kind of race to the bottom that we've been seeing over the last few years, may ironically leave some space for high quality journalists to kind of rise above them because they'll they'll stand head and shoulders above the mess. And people will be more desperate for that. But whether or not their desperation for that outweighs the demand of millions for rage and clickbait is not something I'm sure about. So I really, uh, yeah, that's about as far as I could go. I'm not sure. It'd be very interesting to see how it, how it all pans out over the next, not just the next few years, but even the next 50 years. I think we're living in in a period of time where the the changes that we've obviously witnessed in our, we're around, I imagine we're around the same age. I'm, I'm 32. Yeah, um, right. So, I mean, I, 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 we were kind of the last generation really that grew up without social media, I guess. Um, I mean, Facebook came along when I was about 17 or 18, but it was still not until I was in my early twenties that everyone had a smartphone <laughs> and to see how much our culture the way that we communicate, the way news is reported, um, to see how much of that has changed over the last 10 years is absolutely astonishing. And I think that we're on the kind of, maybe every generation thinks this, but I really think that we're on the edge of a period of time which is extremely unpredictable and um, the world is going to continue to change very quickly, I think. Yeah, I feel like we probably, like, I feel like every generation, in a sense, does say that, but... Obviously, we're the ones who are right about it. So, it's, <laughs> you know, our time is special. <laughs> it's funny, though, because the thing is, every generation does say that. And, and yet also some generations are still much more right than others. Mm. So we, even, if, even if we accept that they will make that claim to varying degrees of truthfulness, there is still some moments where they're correct. I'd say like the advent of electricity would be a pretty huge one, for mm. example. Yeah. Um, and are you, you know, are, you'd have to argue that the advent of the internet and social media is about a bigger change in human history as, as has been seen, as yeah. has been witnessed, you know? Do you think we're at the beginning of that, that, that change, though? Because, I mean, it's very, it's very easy to, to consider the, the revolution that we've seen is the one, the biggest one that's coming because it's <laughs> been so disruptive. But, like, do you think it is the, that's, we've seen, like, the big disruption and now it's like oh, getting a handle on it or is it like something that's just going to get crazier and crazier oh right yeah yes yeah. so, so sorry are you asking are you asking specifically if we're, we're the we're at the end of the internet social media re 
um, social media emergence? Or are you asking whether or not the internet social media emergence will be dwarfed by emergences of other things that we haven't even witnessed yet? Well, either either one, either one. I, th- I think the latter is definite. Who knows what the future holds, right? Yeah. Um, I'd say the former. We may. Who knows? Who knows? Historians of the future may study the advent of the internet and social media, and we may we may still be in, in the very very embryonic stages. Mm. So historians of the future. <laughs> who are obviously watching this because yes. we are on the internet after all yes exactly <laughs> let's hope let's hope that both our careers get to the point that historians of the future are watching this conversation josh you know historians... we've got a couple of decades ahead of us we can make it happen mate exactly they'll be they'll be they'll be looking back at this interview uh, <laughs> it's like that's this is where it all went wrong no <laughs> it was yeah, after yeah, this yeah. moment <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh it's but also, historians of the future will probably be bots, almost yes. definitely, or at least yes. a large amount of the work. Like, let's let's take the optimistic view here that we do develop human-centric AI that doesn't kill us all. Bots will be doing most of the work, I would say, and then humans will be maybe supplementing it or like trying to direct whatever like research power they have probably so to the bots listening to this <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean historians of the future uh, may not may not may not even um exist in quite the same way as they do now humanity may develop to such a point that history as a as a, a method of study may not be as 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 interesting as um as it is now or it may not be as it we may become very future focused we may be very technology focused we may be very much um i don't really know what i'm getting that to be perfectly honest with you i'm just kind of thinking that the study of history may not be as revered and respected in the same way in a couple hundred years who knows mm. well, i think it goes in ebbs and flows that like people, you know, you get, it goes in from like societies that want to revere tradition to the point where they then decide that the traditions are awful or they become, they lose sight of what they're about. And then they decide to tear them all down and then rebuild new ones or rebuild the old ones. And, you know, I think it goes in like cycles. Mm. So, so maybe, mm. but I mean, I, I, I can't see, I can't see any intelligent being not being interested in where it came from. Mm. Mm. That's it. That's assuming they study, they, do they, study, do they, do they study Maoist China and China? I'd be interested to know, you know, is it, is, I doubt it's on the national curriculum. <laughs> I mean, there will be some set like yeah. the, the, I guess there'll be, there would be like, a, there'd definitely be history in there and they would definitely like give a version of how Mao came to power. It would probably be much more romanticized than the reality and a little less murder and starvation. And, uh, <laughs> but but um, yeah, but we've talked about journalism here for, for quite a while. So why not like, so how did you end up going from pro wrestler to journalist? Oof, that's a question. Um, so yeah, I was a professional wrestler, um, from the age of 19 to the age of 26 (laughs) and, uh, it was good times, man. It was good times. I, um, I really loved it. Um, did you go for a period when you were younger of ever watching WWE? Um, yes. Yes. Most people did. did, My best friend has a money in the bank briefcase that we made whilst we were in uni (laughs) 
That, uh, uni, yeah. Yeah, that we, we, we made it out of a biscuit tin and we got one of them to sign the contract. We got two guys to sign their contract um, and we want to cash it in on the current reigning or the last reigning champion of our university house's wedding day. And his like fiance is so unimpressed at even the suggestion that we're going to do this. It's incredible. Oh, <laughs> that is absolutely hilarious. So you were going to gonna like attack him at some point and get, get the win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We're gonna cash it in. <laughs> that is absolutely brilliant. Um, yeah, that's really funny. Um, did you did you cash it in in the end? Or? The wedding's next year. Oh right, you've got to cash it in, man. <laughs> you've got to cash it in, man. You need to make a whole YouTube video about it, like a proper, like fast-paced, like narration of the whole story, and then climax with like coming and rolling him up from behind when he's doing his speeches and everything, like. <laughs> um, yeah, so as a wrestler, um, I, I obviously went through that stage of loving wrestling. Um, when I, well, that stage of loving wrestling never really ended. I started loving it when I was like three years old. And um, I remember wrestling with my brother as a kid. And then by the time I was about 12, 13, me and my friends bought a video camera and we would walk around Bristol, like collecting weapons out of skips, like thin sheets of wood that we could throw each other through. We built tables, jump off ladders, throw each other through tables. And uh, we all had our own characters and we spent years doing that. And then um, when I was about 17, 18, I started training just outside of Bristol where I live. Um, and yeah, I had my first wrestling match when I was 19, spent a couple of years doing it for like 20 pounds, like once a week or once every couple of weeks. And then, um, and then, yeah, by the time I was in my early twenties, started actually making proper money out of it. I mean, well, it's not a huge amount. It's not a very highly paid industry until you can make it to the big time, but definitely like an amount that was pretty decent to be ticking over with, to be doing something as niche as wrestling. And um, can I just clarify, yeah, I by it. the way, like you, you mean that you continued to do like WWE style wrestling when you when you were a professional, like you were it was. Yeah. Was it it wasn't like like Olympics yeah. wrestling? It was like it was it was yeah. WWE style wrestling. Yeah, so okay. so for, for, any, for anyone listening, it's it like uh, play fighting in spandex, if you will. If anyone um, has ever done it or hasn't done it, even like my friend showed me some of the stuff because he did a course on it. He showed me some mm-hmm. of the, the moves and holy shit, man, do those things hurt? Like mm-hmm. everyone's like, oh, it's just fake. And it's like, yeah, it's the, the, the most painful fake thing you'll ever do. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, like 100 percent. It's um, if you if you were to if you were to just randomly play a, a game of rugby, you know, if you were to just get up one morning and play a game of rugby, you'd be you know, you'd be absolutely battered. You know, and it's the same in wrestling. If you just go and try and have a fake wrestling match, you get absolutely battered. I mean, it's it's fake in so far as it's a choreographed performance, but in terms of the um, in terms of the toll that it takes on your body, the risk for injury, and the the skill and training necessary to pull it off, uh, while not just hurting yourself but not hurting others, is um, yeah, it's, there's nothing fake about about that. You um, if you don't train properly, you don't know what you're doing. You're going to end up seriously injured. So. Um, yeah, man, wrestling. It, it still cracks me up, to be honest with you. I um, A lot of my friends are, are actually in WWE now. And that's something that's just so surreal to me. I was talking no to my way. friend. Pete Dunne. Yeah, I was talking to Pete Dunne the other day. No who's, way. Who's, you know him, yeah. Yeah, my friend. Yeah, it's like he goes on about it sometimes. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. I um, I was. It was me and him were like best mates in wrestling, and another kid called Mark Andrews, and us guys started promoting for a company called Attack Pro Wrestling here in in the UK. Have you heard of Attack Pro Wrestling? Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, well, it's, it's not. It's not. It's certainly not as well known as WWE. So no offense taken on that front. But um, Attack Pro Wrestling. Um, it was myself, Pete Dunn, and Mark, and we promoted shows in Birmingham, Cardiff, and Bristol. And yeah, like Pete was. Um, it's easy to say that someone was always destined for the big time when you see their success in hindsight. But to be fair, there were a lot of guys in the UK at that time who were very, very hardworking and very disciplined, very committed and who theoretically could have could have got as far as he has. But um, Pete is the one that did it. And um, he was always, like I say, very committed, very disciplined, very hardworking. He really seemed like he manifested it for himself. He had complete faith and he just cracked on day in, day out, day in, day out, day in, day out. And eventually he made it happen. So, I mean, yeah, he's obviously touring with WWE now. And I, I was chatting to him on Facebook a couple of days after his WrestleMania debut. And um, again, for people that are listening that don't know anything about wrestling, that's like WrestleMania is like, it's like the Super Bowl of pro wrestling. It's like the, the, it's the World Cup final of pro wrestling and um, yeah it's uh, it's kind of surreal to be and there's a few other guys I know as well it's kind of surreal to have friends in WWE it makes me question whether or not I made the right decision in stopping when I was 26 I, um, I stopped wrestling when I was 26 for various reasons one of them was that I didn't think it was going anywhere <laughs> which is funny because a few a few years later one of my best friends in wrestling is like achieving my childhood dreams so you know I'd be lying if I said there wasn't a few mixed emotions around that a bit of regret a bit of difficulty but I left that behind I moved on from that stage in my life and um, I started like, watching a lot of YouTube I've always been interested in I didn't go to university um, so I don't have a formal education in that respect but I've always been I've always been someone that's interested in socio-political conversations philosophical conversations um uh, when I was about 20 I was heavily into Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris the four horsemen that kind of really grabbed my attention for a couple of years um so yeah I always kind of um had a desire for more sort of intellectually quenching um conversations and um and I just started watching a lot of YouTube and I started video editing um teaching myself how to edit video and um, learn how to use Premiere Pro, learn how to use a camera, um, learn how to, you know, how to, I basically over a couple of years became sort of a jack of all trades, you know, I um, editing camera, behind camera, on camera. Um, and yeah, I kind of managed to wangle myself in a job with Bristol TV, which is a little sort of local television station here in Bristol. And that was quite cool. That felt good to have, to have made that happen off my own back. Um, cause then I was obviously responsible for putting out television content every day. Like I say, it's only a small regional television channel, but that was a nice step up from someone that didn't have any formal education in that area. And, um, around the same time I got interested in sort of like many people did interested in the topic of, um, of identity politics and wokeness and then studying that. Um, kind of began to loosely kind of overlap with the type of content I was putting out. And it also made me, it gave me a desire to think more about my worldview beyond that as well, you know, and a greater, deeper interest in history, deeper interest in politics and so on and so forth. Hmm. That's quite... So that really does, that's the question. How did I go from rationality yeah, to journalism? That's, that's a really cool journey, man. Um, <laughs> like, you know... YouTube is so underrated as as like a way in which people can learn. Like, I, 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 why do you think it is that 
because one of the tropes that I see online all the time is just like, oh, you know, they just learned it on YouTube. And I'm like, bro, have you been on YouTube? Like some of the best <laughs> educational things that I have ever seen in my entire life are on YouTube. Why do you think people sneer so much at it? Um, probably partly because maybe they don't go on YouTube because if they did, they would, they would be converts. Um, and uh, maybe partly because there is so much trash on YouTube. So it's easy. The, I think the word YouTube in terms of um, if you say YouTuber, the first thing that kind of comes to mind is trashy content. You know, someone like Logan Paul or Jake Paul or KSI, for example. And you know what? I've watched quite a lot of Logan Paul over the years. I quite like the guy. But nonetheless, uh, it's obviously not particularly highbrow um, intellectual content. So when we hear YouTuber, I think a lot of people just think of sort of talentless, um, rich kids that are kind of blagging a career out of nowhere. So it might be something to do that with that, the association with the word. Um, but it's a complete misunderstanding. It's as, it's, it makes as much sense as saying you just learn it from a book. It's like, yeah, there are a lot of books on a lot of different topics and some books are trashy and some books are, uh, are the opposite of that. So it's, it's exactly the same with YouTube. But um, I mean, it's amazing. It's, it's absolutely, it's an absolutely incredible platform. Um, it's, it's mind-blowingly amazing. I was actually, I had, a, I had a moment last night when I was speaking to my housemate and I was just kind of temporarily blown away by how everything is on YouTube. And I'm sure you've had this conversation a hundred times before. Like Everything's on YouTube. Yeah, everything's on YouTube. Literally everything, you can find it on YouTube. We've all said it, but, but my God, is it true, mm. you know? Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's becoming less and less true. Um, unfortunately, uh, but for now, I mean, like Jordan Peterson, right? For example, because I was watching, I'm, I'm in the middle of one of his, I'm in the middle of his Maps of Meaning lecture series, just sort of whenever I get, a, like I'm washing the dishes or something, I'll stick it on for a bit. But like, that is a guy who was at, like one of the top lecturers at one of the best universities like in the world like in in toronto he's one like the best lecturers there it's like a really highly rated university he was at he was like at harvard as well and this guy has like his entire lecture series like the entire course that you would take that you that people pay like tens of thousands like i don't know if you've seen that college admissions scandal documentary on on netflix people paying like hundreds of thousands if not millions to get their kids into like harvard like stanford like that's the caliber of lecturer he is and we can watch his like best work on youtube for free like what it's 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 absolutely it's absolutely amazing and i think it's really changing the nature of learning for a lot of people um I had a close conversation with a family member. He's, he's very intelligent, very studious, but he, you know, he doesn't, he didn't go to university or anything from that. He just does it for his own pleasure. And I said to him, like, you know, you should really go to university. You know, you should really go to university and cultivate your skills in that environment. He just, he, he, he always seemed like perplexed by the idea. He's just like, why would I do that? Mm. Why, what, for what reason would I do that? Now, of course there are reasons you network, you might meet more interesting people. You'd be put in that environment where you would be uh, maybe pushed beyond your comfort zone and so on and so forth. But at least, in, in, you know, at least in theory, if you're willing to, if your motivation is solely to learn and you're willing to put the same amount of time in at home as you would at university, there is no reason to go to university. You could, you could argue. We could get into the nuances of that, I suppose. But I suppose the, 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 the overwhelming point is that everything you need to learn is out there. Yeah. Did you go to uni? No, I didn't go to university. Like, um, do you feel like you missed out in all? Um, uh, yeah, I think it would have been an interesting experience. 
you know, I wouldn't say it's a deep regret of mine that I spend too much time pontificating over. I also wouldn't say it's too late because I do sometimes still feel like a cheeky degree, maybe something I might be able to squeeze in there at some point. But um, do I feel like I missed out? Yeah. Yes, yes and no. I'm sure I'm sure I would have enjoyed it had I gone, but it's not something I particularly dwell on. What about yourself? Did you there? Yeah, I mean, I did. I did. Um, I did law at Queens in, in Belfast, um, law and politics, but like... <laughs> I didn't go to class, <laughs> you know. It was a, it was an excuse for a booze up, like uh, mm. three year mm. three years of partying and including two weeks of cramming before every set of exams. Like it wasn't it wasn't like an it was like I've had far greater an education from doing this podcast and from mm. reading and and like exploring the world since then. Like university wasn't somewhere where I learned a lot. I think apart from like looking after myself, basically. And, and I suppose the sorry, sorry. No, I was just gonna say I, I have I've spoken to a number of people who are like, oh, you know, I did my bachelor's and you know, I'm gonna go back and do this master's or I wanna go do this PhD program, so I've got to do the master's first, it's like three years, and then, you know, then I'll be ready to step out into the world. And and most of the time for me it looks like like uh, having been and done my bachelor's degree i'm not even sure it's that essential to 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 the world mm. I, I feel like it's an excuse to not go and yeah step outside of like people who like go to do masters just because i feel like they're 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 reluctant to leave the safety of the university campus in a way yeah 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 that's something i that's something I've given thought to. It's a slight segue, to be honest. This isn't exactly the same as what we're saying, but it definitely it made me think of something I've been thinking recently. Like, um, I wonder the extent to which a lot of people that devote their lives to academia, to writing books, to studying, to writing essays and articles, I wonder to what extent that that's a kind of um, distraction from actually um, from actually living and embracing life in its fullest in other areas. I wonder if uh, an intensive study on academia can be a sort of a distraction from going out into the world in general. Mm. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? No, I, I think some, I, do. I think some people hide. I, I think it, some people hide in their intellect. I think almost. It's also like uh, when you're when you're writing about about like some events or topic or or subject like it's especially when it's something that is in that, that affects like your world generally mm. uh, like what in whatever capacity i feel like the ability to try and be a spectator of it almost is is a way that you can prevent yourself from becoming like emotionally wrapped in the topic mm -hmm which was like often seen as the better way to approach things um, to mm. get like objective or like quote unquote un objective like takes on something. But maybe that's like an, uh, maybe the people who are doing that the best are the people least qualified because they haven't experienced life. They're just writing about it. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, again, this is this is almost another segue. So I'm sorry for this stream of consciousness, but something I've been getting into recently quite a lot. I've been reading about psychology, developmental trauma, emotional processing, and I find it quite um, startling that someone can go to university and start studying this at the age of 18 and be kind of a fully qualified therapist or psychotherapist, like in their early to mid 20s. Hmm. And I think that that I don't think that you really can study yourself into 
being able to have uh, an in-depth textured layer, layered understanding of the potential suffering and the nuances of the human experience. Mm. I almost feel like you have to, in order to be like a, a really um, uh, uh, in, intuitive and wise and capable therapist or psychotherapist, you need to have, been, have a certain amount of life experience and to have been through a certain degree of suffering yourself. And, uh, and you, can, you can read books and learn about theories, which are no doubt extremely useful, but I don't think that it's, that it's all you need. So that kind of, that kind of um, um, hops on the point you were making as well. But um, I'm going around the houses a bit, so I apologise. No, 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 it's it's all right. Don't 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 worry about it at all. You just you've made me consider. It's like what what age do you think people are done? Like not even <laughs> not even done, but like I don't know. I've had uh, the pandemic was great for a bit of reflection, you know. Aside from all the other awful side effects, um, it I was uh, like sometimes I think now, and I'm like. Oh my God, Josh of 25 years old or 22 or 20, it was like, that guy was an idiot. Like, <laughs> I'm like, how was I that dumb? How was I that naive? How was I that like, yeah, just stupid. And I wonder, and I'm like, like when, when do you think people can genuinely be considered adults that, that could give like that kind of psychological counseling? Like, at what age do you think people are mature enough for that? Yeah, it's it's such a difficult question. Of course, you can't put a number on it because it is going to be so different for everyone. Um, so, in that respect, it's a question that you can't really answer. But I would probably, I would probably say that that to be able to go straight from school into doing a university course in it, that there would be some limitations in their experience. Like myself personally. I would say I've developed emotionally so much just in the last year or so. Mm. Um, just in the last year, having gone through a difficult breakup, um, having had some high quality therapy, having kind of got in touch with things that happened when I was younger, I would say that my emotional life is um, is far deeper and, la- and richer and more layered than than it would have been had I just gone to university and studied it at the age of at the age of eighteen, because that degree would have ended ten years ago now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. No. And then. Um, and yeah. Yeah. That's it. Really. I just. Um, I don't know really how how they would ever be able to alter that. Of course. But um, it's certainly it's certainly best thinking about. But then even beyond that, it's not even just an age thing. I suppose because people can be people can be thirty, thirty five, forty, and not have had any really deep introspection or, or many emotional reflections or experienced suffering. I suppose rather than it just being an age thing, I'm actually also just touching on. Um, the difficulty of um, formatting and categorizing complex emotional healing, you know, um, in into book form, into course form. Yeah, I mean, I guess in a way, I I, I think I hundred percent agree with you, but the contrarian in my mind is yeah, <laughs> um, thinking something totally different. It, I'm thinking like. I don't know how I don't know how familiar you are with with Jordan Peterson's work. Sorry, my mic's just deciding it's going to be a tick here. I am I am familiar. Okay, so I, you know, people can say whatever they want about his politics, like his psychological, his yes, his lecture series and his work on psychology is just brilliant. Um, and most of the things that he is saying that people are like, I can't believe he's saying this. They're like, 
isn't is him relaying like the the ideas of the great psychologists of the last hundred years is like this isn't his opinion this is like the opinion of all of psychology like or at least like a, a large school of thought um anyway <laughs> sidetrack <Yeah. laughs> he talks a lot about the these like human archetypes and the tropes and the 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 stories of 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 people that are so deeply ingrained and embedded in the human psyche and the human experience that we can't help but understand those feelings and as well as it might be like the hero's journey might be the thing that we're able to identify with even at like five years old when before we even know why we love iron man or why we loved aragorn or like you know why we loved obi-wan kenobi is like those those heroes archetypes that are are so resonant with with us that that they can't help but be felt and i would i would be i would be reluctant to suggest that pain and grief and trauma mm. don't share a similar like heritage and mm. place in our psyche mm. Mm. so that one would not necessarily have had to experience it to be able to kind of touch on it and understand it. It's like an intuitive part of the human experience that we can kind of call upon and deeply understand. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I, I'm definitely open to that. I definitely think there's something to that for sure, yeah. We could argue, of course, that it would that you, one would have a, um, a deeper level of understanding were they to go through it, but I definitely take your point that there's there could be an intuitive understanding even without without doing that i think that's an interesting point yeah because everyone knows pain and hurt yeah. and loss yeah. like it doesn't matter like who you are like no one has gone through their life without some sort of like tragedy or like pain or if they haven't then i don't know what drugs they're on because <laughs> you know that's just like everyone knows that right down from like oh i missed the bus or like you know i <laughs> it's it, it can be painful and so like humans are i'd say able to obviously like some missing the bus isn't the same as like trying to rebuild your life after losing like yeah some really important people or like trying to go mm -hmm. through like deal with ptsd or some really like severe mental like distress obviously i'm not saying they're the same but they are like the same emotion i guess is what I'm well, well, well yeah well the thing is funnily enough there's a documentary called the work um which is about group therapy in a californian prison i really recommend yourself and your listeners check it out it's on amazon prime i think and it's an incredible incredible doc documentary it's one of the most powerful displays of masculine vulnerability i've ever seen um it's um, four members of the general public go and take part in group therapy sessions with rapists and murderers in a Californian prison. And um, these men are sitting around and they're sharing their stories of um, they're being vulnerable with each other. They're talking about their upbringing. They're talking about the events that led to their crimes and they're, um, they're being extremely... Uh, loving, caring, sensitive and vulnerable around one another in a way that most people in, in wider society are unable to be, um, I suppose, because they're incarcerated and because they've been on such a um, horrific journey in their lives that they've been forced to um, reach levels of introspection that many other, many other people don't touch on. But the interesting thing about this documentary is that the, the four members of general public um, that join also have tales of... Um, 
neglect when they were growing up or difficulties or childhood trauma. And of course, their tales are not remotely comparable to the tales, the, the anecdotes shared by the men in the prison, at least on paper. The men in the prison are talking about ex- experiencing horrific abuse um, and really terrible neglect, which led to them committing crimes like murder. Uh, whereas the, the members of the general public that joined the prison, one guy is talking about how when he walks out into the shed to help his dad, with the car when he's five years old, six years old, seven years old, the dad gets irritated and keeps telling him to go inside. That's his, that's his tale of trauma. It doesn't seem remotely comparable on paper, but one thing is for sure, it's affected his life almost as deeply as the experiences of the men in, the men in prison has affected there. Sure, he didn't kill anyone or end up in prison, but in the context of his life, that is holding him back. That trauma, which on paper doesn't seem that severe, in the environment he grew up in, doesn't seem that severe. He had loving parents, you know, he went to a good school, but that trauma messed him up big time. So that's the really interesting thing you mentioned about obviously missing the bus isn't as bad as PTSD. And of course it isn't, but people can really, really suffer from, um, from scenarios that are at least on the surface arbitrary, you know? Mm. And that's something I find fascinating. What do you think masculinity is? <laughs> Coming from a big tough pro wrestler, <laughs> a big former, tough pro wrestler, yeah, a big tough former pro wrestler, <laughs> oh, yeah. or, or or a play fighter in spandex, you could say. Oh, well, uh, I mean, yeah. doesn't quite have the same tough vibes, but um, <laughs> well, both of them, yeah, get, both um, of them get thrown through through tables. So <laughs> that's true. I actually, do you know what? I actually go to men's circles in Bristol. I go to men's sharing circles where groups of men sit around and it's, it's quite hippie-ish. There's, um, there's like meditation, sound healing. Um, we get our arms around each other and do like chants and stuff. Um, I quite, I quite like the hippie stuff, but it's not the most important thing for me. The most important thing for me is the sitting together and just sharing and talking. Um, yeah. What do I think masculinity is? Um, the reason I laughed when you asked the question is because like, it's just your brain go toxic. No. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 (laughs) Exactly. Um, Do you know what? I find it, I find it a really difficult question to answer. I find it, I mean, the things that come, the things that immediately spring to mind are, um, are uh, confidence, but not arrogance, you know, Um, competence, um, the ability to be in touch with one's emotions and to navigate those emotions clearly, the ability to have constructive conversations with your inner critic, the ability to be a, a, a good person that kind of improves the lives of you and other people around you, the ability to do things that make you feel competent, that make you feel um, that make you feel strong, that make you feel like the best version of yourself. But you know, it's difficult really to just say that that is masculinity because I'm sure many women would say that they they desire exactly those things. You could say. That that's a facet of humanity whether or not there are certain elements of that equation which are more applicable to men or not i think i think that's i think that's very possible but um yeah like i said i laughed when you asked the question because despite going to these men's healing groups where the focus is on kind of cultivating healthy masculinity i don't think it's an easy question to answer i'd be interested to know like do you have a do you have a sort of an answer to that question what do you think masculinity is yes a lot of it would probably come down to like responsibility. Um, it's still a question I'm asking myself. I was hoping you'd give me the answer. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I guess it would come down to like some form of response, something around responsibility and like the, because 
yeah, and the the ability to do what you need to do or something like that. I don't. It's like Jordan, Jordan Peterson sums it up nicely when he says, "We all know there's things that we should be doing. We all know there's things that we should be doing that nag us in the back of our head, or we all know that there's certain things we could put right in our life. You know, about ourselves and the lives of others. Um, I suppose you could argue like uh, the closest approximation to that that you can possibly get to is the closest that you can get to to the full expression of your masculinity. I suppose. Mm. Yeah, but um, then then we're going. It's kind of that's a little bit like stoic. Like you're you're aiming at was it is a um, is it eudaimonia you're aiming at like the the most ideal version of yourself or the best yeah. version of yourself. I think that's the word. Yeah. I could be confusing yeah, yeah. with something else. <laughs> I need to refresh my stoicism. Uh, <laughs> so, what do you think being a, a pro wrestler taught you about journalism? <laughs> or about um, politics, maybe. <laughs> politics yeah um i, I, I mean I, you know not, nothing nothing particularly profound i suppose the main the main the main thing i suppose that pro wrestling taught me was like um how to uh integrate yourself and network with a kind of a large group of people because professional wrestling in the uk was a hierarchy you know, and I started at the very, very bottom of the hierarchy. And I made my way up the hierarchy by kind of networking and forming bonds with people and increasing my competence as I made my way through that hierarchy. You kind of, you increase your competence while networking, while increasing your competence while networking and slowly little doors open in little places and you kind of, you ascend. So I suppose how to deal with hierarchies, I suppose it's given me some some. Um, confidence in how to deal with hierarchies like I look at YouTube now for example and it's obviously like it can be so demoralizing and it can be so um, you feel like you're at the bottom of this massive mountain looking up at it and it feels like you're just one of well you are one of just millions of people shouting into an abyss and it kind of requires a lot of faith to just think if I keep going it's a, a powerful card for me and yet I would say my experience in wrestling, although climbing the British wrestling hierarchy was much easier um, because it was much less busy than the entirety of the world on YouTube. <laughs> I think that it's given me some experience in having a little bit of faith that competence plus networking can can forge a path. So I suppose that that's, that's something that's relatable between the two things. I, Despite the fear that I have standing at the bottom of the mountain thinking I'm never going to reach anything approaching a summit, um, I, I I see that it I see that it is possible if you if you work hard and play your cards right. Yeah. Yeah. So who we see at the top? PewDiePie and like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, can I ask you something? Yeah, sure. Uh, just back to Jordan Peterson quickly. Um, I had a like a long debate with a member of my family for about 45 minutes in the car recently after a walk in the Cotswolds. It was quite funny. We were discussing who would be more likely to go down in history, who's more likely to be remembered in a couple hundred years' time. Uh, Jordan Peterson or Noam Chomsky? Oh. Oh, that is a fucking good question. Because that's kind of a generational one. Because my head goes Peterson, but I don't. I'm not. I'm not sure that's right. Because <clears throat> Chomsky's huge. I, I could. I, I, I could. I, could I, should I elaborate slightly on the arguments put forward by the two of yes, us to see a bit? Please. Okay. So Chomsky. The argument from my uh, friend was that um, 
family member was that Chomsky um, has contributed more academically in the field of linguistics. Um, so he was arguing that Jordan Peterson, as you touched on earlier, hasn't actually contributed to any new work, new material or anything kind of pioneering specifically in the field of psychology. Mm. He's, he's popularizing theories and he's, he's got a cult of personality around him. But in terms of the development of psycho psychology as an academic subject, he hasn't really provided anything particularly new or innovative to, to that mm. field. Whereas Chomsky has, as an academic, Chomsky has actually, um, has actually contributed greatly to the field of, of linguistics in the sense that when historians look back on the field of linguistics, his name will be there. Whereas with Peterson, when you're looking back on the field of psychology, his name may not be there. Mm -hmm. So that's the argument uh, in favour of Chomsky. I would say the argument in favour of Peterson is that he's just a way, 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 way bigger deal. And whether or not someone goes down in history isn't necessary. And Chomsky's a huge deal as well. I'm not, I'm not dismissing yeah, I mean, like Ask any well, person in who's ever critiqued media they have read manufacturing consent. Like right. every every person who is like critical of government, critical of how the, the, the narratives get controlled, about how the status quo gets held up. Like Chomsky is at the base of so much of that. Like he was the one that articulated it all first. Mm -hmm. But he, he that was still very much in within the um within the conversations of people that are interested in those topics, whereas Jordan Peterson has completely exploded into the mainstream, partly due to social media. So with Jordan Peterson, a lot of people that actually aren't interested in a lot of those topics otherwise are interested because of Jordan Peterson. Mm. So he's popularized a lot, a lot of things. Whereas with Chomsky, I wouldn't say that he made that transition in quite the same way, not to take away from what a big deal he is. As far as public intellectuals go, he's, 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 he's pretty close to being as big as it gets, but Jordan Peterson, I would argue has taken it into a whole, a whole different stratosphere, probably partly due, well, mainly due to sort of YouTube and social media, you know? Um, I'm not, I'm not convinced that that's all it is. Okay. I I just I, I like I I paid I've paid sixty seven pound or something like that for a ticket to go and see him at the SSE Arena in London, right? And some of the tickets at the front are like four, five, six hundred pound. He sells out those arenas like thousands and thousands and thousands of people come in to watch a psychology professor lecture on the psychological significance of the books of Exodus. <laughs> I know. Look at his lectures. Like millions of people have watched his, his like psychology series, his maps of meaning series, his first biblical series. It's like millions of people don't watch like one two three hour lectures about like high level psychological analysis like this unless I mean. there's something there because like he he's I, I can't i can't quite put my finger on what it is that he's doing but he seems like he's turning around and telling a, a hell of a lot of young men who had never heard the words responsibility discipline sacrifice and he's like hey you yeah you you're a mess. You're wasting your life. Like, get your shit together. Like, obviously, in a much nicer and more articulate way than this. But he's like, 
not far, it's not far off. <laughs> he may not say get your shit together, but I mean, pretty much that is not far off what he says in it's a way. It's like, just like, like take a bit of responsibility for yourself. Like, go pick up like the heaviest thing you can carry and do it. Like, go out in mm. the world and do something. And, mm. and, and he's, whenever he's talking about when he says this in like stadiums, he just says you could hear a pin drop. And it's like, mm clearly there's some lack and that's why i asked about masculinity kind of because like there's i feel like there's there's something that is missing if so many millions of people are craving that message and it mm, suggests mm. that like our society in whatever way is not delivering mm -hmm. whatever that is do you mm. know what i mean Oh yeah, no, hundred percent. I know exactly what you mean, and um, yeah, I think that I think that's spot on. Um, and I think you know, there's predictions, isn't there, moving forward that um, that like that there'll be more and more bots doing work, that more and more work will be automated, and then as such, I think the crisis of masculinity will um, will kind of get worse or feed into that or whatever it may be. I think men need to feel useful. Men need to feel important, like they have a purpose, like they have a drive, and increasingly in a society where we have so many of our um, basic needs met, you know, um, in the past, our, our purpose and our drive would have been much simpler. It would have been to stay alive through food and shelter and protecting our family. And like now, now we have all of our basic needs met. And so we have to find our purpose and drive in other areas. And I think that that's a massive vacuum for a lot of people mm -hmm. because a lot of people don't have jobs that they find purposeful. Um, they don't have lives that they find purposeful. And I think that probably has a lot to do with it. I'd say that maybe, maybe ev this is kind of speculation, but maybe we're kind of evolutionarily for the vast majority of our existence as male human people, animals, uh, our kind of port of call has been to stay alive. And that was our purpose and that was our drive. And now that that's not as necessity as much, we're missing something perhaps. Um, that could be at least an element of it. But, um, and, and, you know, going back to the point that you were saying about um, Peterson selling out stadiums, like, for no matter we can we can heap praise on Chomsky all day long, but it, you can't argue that he's had the same cultural impact as Jordan Peterson. Mm -hmm. He quite simply he he just quite simply hasn't. Even if we give him all of the credit that he deserves for for all of his life's work and the impact that he has had on a lot of people, no doubt it's just not it's just not the same. What Peterson has done has 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 dwarfed it. Um, because he's a Peterson's, it's not just academic, it's about people's lives, it's about meaning, you know, it's not just about politics or, or linguistics, it's about it's about meaning and purpose. And that's why he's kind of penetrated the mainstream, which is why, which is why I think Peterson is more likely to be remembered by more people in a couple hundred years than Noam Chomsky, but maybe not. Maybe not. I will disagree with your point about the um his contribution to the field of psychology. Okay. I think yeah. his, uh, happily, happily, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll convey that to the person I'm having the debate with. So yeah, please, please do. Um, <laughs> can, like the thing that I would point to would be the self authoring and future authoring program. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with these things. That yeah, he runs, oh, yeah, yeah. 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 So yeah, like, yeah, I yeah. can't remember the exact figure, but it's got, it like increases people, or sorry, it reduces as far as I remember the rate of dropout by 40%. Mm. That is, that is uh, like uh, unbelievable. Like if you said to me, right, we're going to take these, say we're going to take these thousand people who are going to decide to drop out of like the sixth form or university, right? 
and we're going to just take them for like 10, three, five to 10 hours. We're going to get them to write down what their life has done, what they've done in their life today, and then ask them what they would like the future to be like and what the future could be like if they fail to like improve themselves and give mm-hmm. them. And that's it. And that would have such a huge effect on people's like dropout rates. It suggests that like, it suggests that we're missing this huge, really easily accessible, like tap to increase like the the potential of humanity in mm. like just articulating like who we are and where we want to mm. go. Mm. And <laughs> it's it's weird that we that that's not seen as something huge. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. And I think that. Um, I think the concept of of uh, writing about yourself clearly and meticulously c- could and probably should be elevated to the same status in terms of well being and mental health as exercise and meditation. Yeah, you know? de- yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think there's probably a strong argument that it's equally as important as those things. Mm. I've started journaling this year. Um, what I used to write you diary. To do it? Um, so when, when I was a kid, I used to write diaries all the time from the age of about nine or 10 until I was 16, I filled literally dozens and dozens of diaries. I've got the box in them here, literally. This is from 2001. I would just write a four pages and it would take me a few months just to get through one of these. I would write sometimes three or four pages a day. And that went on for years. And it's hilarious reading them back as well. Um, do you read and, them back? Because uh, I never read mine back. I do not want to <laughs> know what was in my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been on a little bit of a spiritual quest recently. I've been doing a lot of emotional processing and getting in touch with a lot of things. And I reconnected with an old primary school friend who um, I wrote about my friendship with him extensively in these diaries. And it's been hilarious. I was sitting back like like ne- nearly 20, well, 20 years later, actually, and reading and reading about it and then we've been pissing ourselves we were reading one the other day about when we went to the cinema and we had our first ever like interaction with these two girls we were 11 and they were like 12 and 13 and they came and sat next to us and were asking us if we had girlfriends and some fondling commenced and it was like the most incredible day of our life and I wrote dozens and dozens of pages about it in excruciating detail I was like I'm writing a lot of detail today because this moment this momentous day needs to go down in history. Every single detail of the day from beginning to end was written down in detail. Me and my mate were reading about it the other night and we were crying with laughter. How much do you remember? How much of it did you remember? I remember, I, I, uh, I remember the incident. Okay. I remember the incident because in my head, it's the first time that I ever had anything close to approaching anything with a girl. And there's a very, it was very, um, there wasn't much going on there. It was just a few little like rubs, but it was like, oh my God. Um, so I remember that sort of, but like, you know, reading about it in detail is absolutely amazing. And, and I think that it gave me, I think that it gave, it was therapy for me as a child. Of course, I didn't realize that at the time, but I didn't view it as a chore. It wasn't something that, oh, I have to write in my diary. It was something I needed to do. It was something I wanted to do. I viewed sharing my processes of growing up in my diary as it was just something that I did. It was second nature. It was something that I needed to do. I viewed my diary as like a friend that I needed to update on what was happening. Mm. And uh, I think it was very powerful for me. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I think it gave me a very strong sense of clarity and identity, even at that young age. So what prompted me to start doing it again? um, I think like when you get, when you grow up, 
when you go through some difficult times, um, when you experience some hardships and struggle, you get knocked back a few times, you suffer. I think that um, it can be really beneficial to try and reconnect with the younger version of yourself, you know, before all they, before you got knocked down a few times, because we're, we're kind of all sweet, innocent children underneath it all. And then the layers of our experience build up and some of those layers complement us and some don't. And we become, we become affected by the events in our life. And I had a feeling for a long time that getting back to a position where I was writing a diary was really important to me. So, um, I, um, I've been, it's been in my head for a few years, you know, I've been procrastinating on it. I was like, I really should start writing a diary again because I had this vision. Like when I start writing a diary again, I'll be connecting to something younger, something pure, something more vibrant, you know? And, um, instead of just becoming increasingly hardened by the ups and downs of life. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, um, I went through a breakup at the end of last year. Um, and, um, went through a, it was, it was difficult. Uh, it was a difficult time. And yeah, I just decided at the start of this year to start writing in this, to start writing in this diary. So I guess what prompted it was just um, a desire to process my thoughts and emotions. And um, and it, yeah, it's 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 brilliant, man. It's really it's been um, it's been a powerful time. It's been quite nostalgic writing in detail about myself again. And um, and that's why I, I yeah yeah maybe you're right what you say about Jordan Peterson. Maybe maybe if 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 it's even, I mean, how many people are taking on these future authoring courses? Because like, if it's large numbers, then maybe, maybe he will go down to history for something like that as well. I don't think it's like particularly large numbers at the minute, mm-hmm. but like he runs a lot, like basically everyone that does his like courses at uni does them and like, they're trying to get them into a lot of schools and, and universities mm-hmm. as well. Um, but I definitely think the, the, it's the piece of advice that I give to to anyone that's like oh you know i'm like i don't know what to do here or like yeah i'm having a bit of a tough time they're just like man journal journal mm. it seems so stupid right and it's it's insane like because right i i have to tell people it like this i'm like look all i did was like write down what i wanted to happen and mm. it started to fucking happen like <laughs> I, I, I cannot even explain it anything other than that i was like right okay so i was like middle of pandemic like living at home didn't have a job like i was doing my podcast and writing and stuff but i had no idea where my life was going um and i just started being like right well you know i'd like to move to london i'd like to have my podcast i'd like to get a job to like supplement that for the next little while and then it all happened mm. like mm. i just like articulated that that was what i would like to do yeah. and like my yeah. brain started like moving me towards it like i probably had luck as well and you know i stuck mm. it doing the podcast and stuff but now i'm gonna move to london we're getting the studio set up and everything's going swimmingly and like yeah, I, I could i like attribute that almost exclusively to writing it down <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think there's something in the act of writing that makes you feel very connected to yourself. You're not lost in thoughts and ideas and narratives. You deeply connect with your desires and it gives space for that to then flourish from there. I don't think there's anything magical about it. I think that, uh, yeah, I don't know exactly how to how to uh, theorize what it is, why it works and how it works. But I do think that when you're deeply connected to yourself, you're able to then put that energy back out into the world and then it comes back into a positive feedback loop. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. But anyway, man, um, sadly, as I was a little late, um, I'm flat out of time because it's my last few days in Belfast and I'm trying to squeeze in seeing as many people as possible. Um, so, 
so yeah, I'm gonna run, um, and I also have to cool. finish packing um, today. So thanks a lot for having me on. It's been—I feel like we've kind of we've gone we've gone over quite a few different topics, and we've sort of jumped from topic to topic. So um, you know, I hope that I hope the chat was enjoyable and useful. Oh yeah, someone man, it was certain. great. I'm sure everyone that listened enjoyed it, um, and. Yeah, like stay in touch. We'll do this again, man. Once I'm over, yeah. I'm in Bristol occasionally. Um, yeah, man. Let me know when you're in Bristol. It'd be great to see you. Yeah, I have a friend that I said I would go visit down there. So, yeah, thanks. But anyway, it was a pleasure. Much love, man. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast. If you want to leave us a comment, that would be awesome. Please like, share, subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for listening.